0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Coach's Corner episode. As you may or may not know, I am currently on maternity leave. And all the coaching episodes are fresh coaching episodes that drop Wednesday. I batched a bunch of them. But we thought it'd be fun for Coach's Corner to mix it up a little bit. And one of the things we're doing is airing interviews I've done on other people's podcasts on this show. So you're about to hear someone else interview me. You get to know someone else. You get to know their podcast. Maybe you get to know more about me. And we hope you enjoy this interview. So as you were listening to this episode, you may have thought, how do I work on my inner child? How do I get to know my inner child better? How do I really heal my inner child? And if you have some idea about that, or maybe you've tried some things and they haven't worked, well, then I have a solution for you. Steph and I get this question so much about inner child. It comes up so much on the podcast. And so we created an inner child workshop. We taught it live and we will teach it live again, probably in 2023. But for now, you can get it virtually. You can get it recorded. We took the best live course, put it into an awesome course for you, and you can go through it at your own pace at any time. So go to Christinehassler.com slash inner child. And when you go to checkout, you can use the promo code OVERIT, O-V-E-R-I-T, for $50 off as well. So christinehassler.com slash innerchild Use the promo code over it for $50 off. We have had such incredible feedback from this course. People have had massive, massive changes. We teach you, we coach you, we take you through experiential meditations, visualizations, breath work. It's just so awesome. So I hope you invest in your inner child today and take yourself through this course.
1: Hi. I've been waiting to do this one. Uh, I know. I'm excited. Uh, such an honor to be here with you, sister. Thank you for having me over to your house. I love having you in my house. Mm, It does (laughs) feel good. It's so beautiful. And the last time I was here, you and Steph were having your gender reveal for your baby. And that was so exciting. I remember sitting by this table here on the floor and just crying and crying and crying. I was just, I'm so happy for you Thank you. Thank
0: you. It has been really exciting. It's been a really just just surreal time in a lot of ways. Mm
1: -hmm. Such a special time, miraculous time. I know a time of such deep teaching and revelation, and it's been powerful for me as someone who is entering into similar readinesses of these Mm -hmm. portals of birthing and motherhood Mm -hmm. to be able to watch you and to Mm -hmm. hear from you what's already come up. It's been an honor to witness. Thank you. Thank
0: you for being part of it.
1: Yes. And so we will definitely dive into all of that later in our chat, but I really wanted to start with your growing up, your childhood, because I know you grew up in Texas where we currently sit, or at least in this area. And then you had this powerful pull and trajectory over into Hollywood. And now we're back in Texas. And I thought, huh, I know that you have been someone who has experienced a lot and accomplished a lot in life. And for some reason, the question of childhood experiences that shaped you the most was a question that just kept coming to mind. So I wanted to start there.
0: Mm. Well, I'm not surprised that question came to mind because that's the essence of my work Mm. is helping people connect dots to their childhood experiences, oh. heal and upgrade their childhood experience, parent their inner child. This. Yeah. Parent their inner child and give themselves a childhood they never had or that they always wanted. So for me, I mean, there's so many things I could talk about. A super pivotal one that I'll mention because it's been the inspiration, the catalyst for so much of my work was around 11 or 12. I can't remember exactly being put on Prozac,
1: mm-hmm. which is an
0: antidepressant, and. It wasn't a decision my parents made lightly. I remember going to a bunch of psychiatrists, I remember doing some ink block tests. And, Mm. you know, I, I also remember this feeling of there's something wrong with me. And it was a very disempowering feeling, although I felt very loved and supported by my parents, knowing that they really were trying to help. I don't really remember what was going on. I think I, you know, I was dealing with some trouble at school socially. I think I was maybe just retreating a little bit. Looking back, I feel the reason is that I was a super highly sensitive child, mm-hmm. very psychically open as a kid, would close my eyes, see sacred geometry. I didn't know it was sacred geometry. Mm. It was later in life where I saw pictures and I thought, that's what I used to see when I closed my eyes. That's mm. crazy. And I could just feel everything. We'd go to a restaurant and there'd be an old man eating alone and I'd just start crying because uh. I felt so safe. I knew his wife just died. I could feel his stuff. So and it was a time when we didn't have as much access. You know, parents now have so many accesses to resources and yeah. my parents really didn't. There was, it really wasn't a conversation about Indigo kids and highly sensitive children and, you know, empaths and all those things. And so I just don't think any of us knew what to do with a super highly sensitive, intuitive child. Yes. And the antidepressants were useful because they gave me a shield. You know, I just wasn't feeling that much. And Well, what was diagnosed as depression is gluten. Mm. I eat gluten today Mm. and the next day I just, Mm. I'm like, life sucks.
1: I don't want to leave the house. Luke is the exact (laughs) same. Yeah, I've heard him in the time that we have lived together say countless times, I don't know when I'm going to learn my lesson because literally every time he takes a bite of gluten, he's so sensitive and so affected by it he instantly feels it, whether it's mind, body, spirit, soul, or a combination of all. And the next day he's like, ah, and, and he is pretty good about it for the most part, but I'm the one at, before dinner that's eating the bread. And I don't notice uh, any negative effects. I'm not saying that they're not there and happening, but I'm just not sensitive to it the way you guys yeah. are.
0: And a lot of people are like, what, does it upset your stomach? It's like, no, that would be more obvious. It upsets my brain, yes. really upsets my brain. So You know, for me, that journey of being on antidepressants, and I think I've been on almost every one. I mean, I've been off of them for over a decade now. I mean, it was about 28, 29, I started to really clear I wanted to get off of them. And this isn't a statement against antidepressants. It's just my experience. I just knew, because by then I was into my coaching career and was studying spiritual psychology, and I just felt like I wanted the shield off, like I wanted Mm -hmm. the numbness off. Least that was what it felt like for me. I I didn't feel super low lows, but I wasn't feeling the highs either. And I felt like my pineal gland couldn't totally open up. And so that journey of depression and anxiety really was what put me on my spiritual path because I had been seeing psychiatrists since I was 11 and just reached a point actually when I was in Los Angeles and I moved to LA when I was 20 and was just like. I have the diagnosis. I have the awareness. I can psychoanalyze myself. Something's missing. I think I was about 21 or 22 when I found Mona, my first coach and Mm. spiritual teacher. And I sat down with her. I saw her in her house, which was completely unconventional for me. I'm used to offices and clipboards and very professional (laughs) environments. And she saw me in her son's bedroom with his race car bed. And I was like, this lady's crazy. (laughs) but it was the first time i felt like i was really in the presence of unconditional love oh. and judgment i mean doesn't
1: get any more healing than that it doesn't that. And, and i
0: wanted to run out of the room because i was like what is this you're not analyzing me you're not telling me what's wrong with me what like you're just loving me this feels uncomfortable and so i tried to run from her many times but she was the one that said baby you don't need those drugs if you don't want them like you can get off of them and it took me pretty much all my 20s to eventually
1: yeah. I think this is such an important topic of discussion because there obviously every single person's journey with it is unique and divinely designed and all of that stuff. But I love any time this organically surfaces to just release another thread of stigma or any weird embarrassment, shamey anything. You know, I myself, especially when I was in college, I got really struck with severe panic disorder and anxiety panic attacks. And I was on...
0: Those pretty, are the worst. I'd rather get four root canals than have uh, a panic attack.
1: They're awful. They're really bizarre. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Incapacitating sometimes. And, and so, yeah, I was on some medication during that time in my life as well. And I remember I got this book called The Anxiety and Phobia Handbook. Mm. And I really, I was a devoted student in healing my panic disorder. And that book was really helpful. So for anyone out there who might be resonating with this, but yeah, I think it's really good that you pointed out that you wouldn't change anything about your journey and that the Prozac was helpful to you at that time in your it was, life. It was.
0: And it was absolutely the best tool my parents had mm-hmm. in there because a lot of people are like, what was your back? I'm like, first of all, I had parents that really loved me and really cared about me. And I know, even though my child is still in the womb, already that is she okay? Like when we got the virus, when I was pregnant, I was, I didn't care about me. <laughs> I was like, I'll take out whatever, but is she okay? Mm-hmm. Because thinking about our child suffering or being hurt in any way, I think is just terrible for parents. It's yeah. one of the biggest lessons we as parents learn is how to not go in and rescue our child. And because we can't prevent them from suffering, we just can't. Yeah. And I think that my parents just saw me suffering and that was the best tool they had, and. It was part of my soul curriculum. You know, it was what I signed up for mm-hmm. on a soul level to have an experience like that because it's given me such compassion and understanding from depression and anxiety, such understanding of, you know, people's choices, whether they want to go on medication yeah. or not. Because for some people, it is the only answer that they have. And I was very lucky. You know, when I went off antidepressants, I was married at the time. I had Mona. I was in my grad school program for spiritual psychology. I had the financial means to go to nutritionists and alternative practitioners and get my diet. And I had the time and the space. I was had my own business, so I wasn't working full-time. So I really had what was needed yes. to be able to wean myself off after 20 years of being on a drug. Wow. Like I would take these benzenite clay baths. And in addition to Antidepressants. I was on anti-anxiety pills at times, and then I had migraines, so I took exceterin every day for twenty-three years. Geez, I didn't know this. Oh about gosh, you. yeah. And then I was on Accutane as a teenager, and then Jeez. I didn't start puberty on time, so then I got put on pros. Birth pro- control. Yeah, no. Um, yes, but before that, the hormones, estrogen and progesterone. This little red pill and this little yellow pill. I'll never forget them. So I was just like a cocktail of pharmaceutical wow. things, and I would take these baths, and I could smell. Like the toxins coming out of me, you know? And I still to this day, like have to be careful with my liver and all that kind of stuff because I was just taking this stuff at a young age, but I just didn't know. Yeah. But that's part of my teaching is that, you know, the one of the things that I think our culture is entrenched in is well, just take a pill. Like there's a problem, just take a pill. And we're often not getting to root cause because the body's a messenger. Such a messenger. And You know, I'm not going to say that, well, if you get a disease or something's wrong with you, you caused it with your emotions and thoughts, because none of us know if that's 100% true or not. However, I've seen enough in my own life and with so many people that whether it's a physical symptom or a mental symptom, that the subconscious, Mm -hmm. the body is a subconscious translator. Like if your subconscious wants to give you a message, it will do it through the body. And I've had to have a lot of body experiences to get that lesson, but I've learned how to pay attention to my body and the cues it's sending me and not want to just reach for that quick fix.
1: And also to be in as much as you can in real time with when those messages Mm -hmm. do emit, because I would guess you've had a similar experience as mine, like the longer you go and not paying attention, it typically exacerbates into a situation that's not perhaps ideal and more intense than what is needed. And yeah, I can also really relate my body, trying in so many different ways. God bless these beautiful, sacred, physical vessels that we have. It tried over and over in so many different ways to get my attention, telling me, you know, you're really off course, you're really off track with what you came here to be and do. But yeah, I just wasn't in a place, I guess, of readiness to let myself face that truth. So it resulted in a divine intervention for me. But the interesting vision I got for you, and you know, not saying this is accurate, but in you being a highly sensitive child, yeah, it's like I could see you guys entering into certain scenarios or settings and your mom observing you and like you not even needing, you not saying anything or needing to say anything, but her just picking up on that sensitive nature that you had and almost like not you flinching, but her just having this visible cue that something's off and yet you're young. And I don't know how spiritual your parents are, but like you said, there weren't you know a ton of books on indigo children and, and you're a kid yourself. So you not having the spiritual toolkit of like, oh, my top five grounding techniques yeah. and Things to go to, you know, clearly at that time that was right, meant for or you. mentors or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even
0: know about going and putting my feet in the ground. Yeah. Like just basic things like that just weren't part of our vocabulary or community. Yeah. You know, so, but now I know, and that's one of my intentions in raising this child is to, because I have a feeling she'll be sensitive. And I think a lot of the kids coming in right now are
1: mm-hmm.
0: very old souls and are going to have a lot of gifts and a lot of 5D and beyond abilities. And it's my intention to really keep her connected to the spirit world as yeah. best I can to uh-huh. really nurture that and to really let her show me her gifts and get out of her way as much as I can.
1: Oh, I just want to allow us all to sit and just be in that beautiful space that you just created because that's incredibly powerful teaching and it really struck a chord in me that that also resonates as, as an intention that I also want to hold. I do believe that it's meant for Luke and I to birth at least one child. And so it felt powerful for me because like yourself, when I was two and a half, I hit a decision point either to preserve a relationship or to shut my gifts down. And I don't want my child to encounter that same crossroads of like feeling a sort of ultimatum, either or situation. You know, because in a recent interview, it did bring me to tears and reflecting like, God, at two and a half, I had to make that call.
0: Amazing you are aware of that. That's incredible. Yeah,
1: I can really track it back specifically. And I also want, you know, our potentially soon coming child to, yes, I want to hold them in that safe, sacred space to allow their spiritual gifts to continue to flourish and not hit a have to shut down point. Well, and that's such
0: a dilemma so many children face is... Who am I loyal to? God or mom or dad or whoever it is? And boom, I
1: oh God, uh, (laughs) that way of putting it is very palpable. It's and as a child, it's like, well,
0: this is who feeds me. This is who I'm trying to get love and validation and safety from. Like this is my primary caregiver, so I have to choose them. Like I have to. And then the veil starts to drop, and you know, we just start to get more and more disconnected.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. And, you know, I wouldn't change a thing of it. it. Taught me so much, but it was such a painful decision to have to make. And so, you know, I have a list of a few listener questions and I was initially thinking I would leave them to the end, but one kind of weaves into where we're at right now. So I thought I would go to it. At Anna Zambrini asks, what is the purpose of trauma? do we actively choose it? Is it a part of what we came for? Mm. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, first let's define trauma because a lot of people think trauma means I was in a terrible accident or I had an abusive parent or an addict parent, or I was sexually molested or abused. And yes, all of that is trauma, but so can being called fat at the pool. So can moving when you're in second grade. So can watching your parents have an argument that scares you. Trauma is basically too much too fast. It's when all of a sudden your sense of safety and certainty is threatened and your nervous system goes into fight, flight, or freeze and your body can't calibrate. So it's kind of like a little bit of a nervous system injury, like how I like to describe it. And it's very important for us not to dramatize our life, but also to be realistic with the trauma that we've experienced because often, like we do a lot of inner child workshops and people will hear about someone who grew up, you know, being abused and molested their whole life. And then they think their trauma about being teased or moving or their parents getting divorced, is like, not that bad. Oh my gosh, I wasn't abused. So it's not that bad. And we'll minimize our trauma because we compare it to other people's trauma. And while it's wonderful to be grateful that our life maybe wasn't as intense as other people's and have gratitude for that, it's also really important to honor what was traumatic. Mm-hmm. Because just because you didn't have that doesn't mean what did happen to you was traumatic.
1: Yes. I'm so glad you're bringing this in. And I do think it's really important. And there's something I want to hone in on that's trying to creep into this part of the conversation. Yeah, it's taking me back again to that divine blueprinting or soul contracts that we devise and and also past lives. And we're Mm -hmm. such complex (laughs) light grid beings that exactly what you're explaining. Yes, it weaves into then our earth walk because for me, the cave I fear to enter that hold the treasure I seek. I, you know, that Joseph Campbell quote, and that's what happened on my divine intervention awakening moment. The fear I was too scared to face, but in that moment was forced to was betrayal. And I explain a lot in interviews, like somebody else could have had, you know, a similar scenario of dating someone for almost two decades and then they finally face the truth. And, you know, it maybe it wasn't, top five most traumatic moments for them. But for me, it was absolutely the most obliterating, drop to my knees, you know, anguishing moment. And I have pieced a lot of those past life pieces back together to understand why in this lifetime was that Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. thing that would cause my awakening. Somebody else could, you know, get cheated on in multiple ways. And it's You know, kind of keep their life moving. Yeah. So I'm so glad you're bringing that in to not do the compare and contrast. It's like there's way too many threads and details.
0: There's way too many, and you could be someone who, like, you could have more sensitive nervous system, or you could have come in with different karma. And to answer that question, what's the purpose of trauma? Well, to back up, and I'm sure your audience knows this. Earth is school. We come into this world of contrast to basically evolve our soul. You know, if the IntelliKey of an acorn is to turn into an oak tree, IntelliKey of the human soul is to grow in consciousness. And we can't grow without contrast. It's like, I've found very few people who've gotten on their spiritual path without a massive expectation hangover beforehand, without a traumatic experience, without being brought to their knees and going, what gives? And so it is those experiences that eventually help us evolve and help us grow and help us heal. And if you think of us as a collective, like I I talk about sexual abuse a lot. And when I was going through my healing of that, I had to do my own individual healing, but I also knew I was part of the collective of healing that trauma of abuse, Mm -hmm. because I know that for so many centuries and centuries and centuries, and I'm in a female body this lifetime, so many women have died with the shame, anger, sadness, grief, and resentment of abuse and violation and all that in their bodies. And so... If we die with that in our bodies, we just got to come back and experience it again, either as victim or perpetrator. You know, we don't get free of something karmically unless we really get to a point of forgiveness. Not airy-fairy, affirmation-ish, I forgive because, you know, they were doing the best they can. Not that mental forgiveness, but the true forgiving the judgments inside, like forgiving the judgments that my innocence was taken that Mm. I was violated, like that Mm. my body isn't mine anymore. Whatever those judgments and resentments are and forgiving myself for holding resentment against perpetrators as well. And that frees me up. The forgiveness is really for me. And that way I don't have to carry the heaviness of abuse for myself or doing my part as as a collective. And so the purpose of that was one, to evolve my own soul because there was so much I had to learn And everything from the way I hold shame, speaking up, speaking my truth, being in a female body, all kinds of things I had to really unpack from that. But then there was also the part of this was my agreement to come in and experience this as part of healing it for the collective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think we necessarily, before we come into human form, go, okay, so this experience is going to happen at six and this is going to happen here. And I'm going to attract this. I don't think it's that specific. I think that we come in with what are the lessons my soul needs to learn. And if one of the lessons my soul needed to learn was empowerment, forgiveness, feeling comfortable in a female body, feeling comfortable with my sexuality, if those were some of the soul lessons, then on the human level, I'm going to bring in things Mm -hmm. that help me. And I think Free will and all that kind of stuff influence the cast of characters and the timing and the circumstances of what we experience to evolve. But I do think there's a soul plan in terms of the lessons we're supposed to experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm not trying to go into deep into this tangent, but also too, I agree with what you just said, but I also think there is that possibility. Like with my ex-fiance, I am so certain that there was like a karmic contract oh, sure. between the two of us and tracking back to the past life situation that created, that played a huge part in the betrayal being like the greatest fear for me. I sometimes wonder if it was he and I back and that past life. And, you know, we had to unravel that. uh, Cause like you said that, you know, if you pass away with some of those nodules or those aspects still
0: unresolved unresolved,
1: yeah. and permeating that toxicity within you, then yeah, it's like, okay, we've got to do around 28 for yep. this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely believe in karmic contracts and there's people we come back and I mean, you know, I even think about one of my greatest fears is something happening to my husband mm-hmm. and dying before me. And yep. I know that's past life, like it's just such, cause we've had many lifetimes together and mm-hmm. this is actually my life to be able to like have him <laughs> mm-hmm. and like have that life with him. But that fear will come up a lot because it's just, it's just karmic.
1: So I want to talk now, maybe you had told me this, but when I was going to your website to get ready for this interview, I was like, oh shit, I even said to Luke, I was like, did you know she has a master's in spiritual psychology? (laughs) And I just thought that that was so cool that you decided to do your advanced studies Mm -hmm. into that niche. What was that like for you? Because at what point did, well, you touched on getting Mona as a life coach. And so your spiritual awarenesses, was it at that time Mm -hmm. that they started to open back up? Yeah, my early twenties. And then once I got off
0: antidepressants, they really opened.
1: Okay. Yeah. And is that partially then what led you into studying spiritual psychology? I actually enrolled before because I was, I started
0: working as a life coach, which was a surprise. I wrote a book called 20 something, 20 everything. And people kept calling me to book sessions with me. And I'm like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not a counselor. And Mona's like, okay, time to train you and went and trained with her and got other life coaching training and then was like, I cannot help people with their present and future unless I help them with their past. I need psychology. I want to understand it. I want to learn more. And the place that I went is the University of Santa Monica and they don't offer the master's degree program anymore, but they still do the online certificates and it's absolutely amazing and always will be a spiritual home for me. And enrolled, I think when I was, I don't know, my late 20s, I think it was, I had just gotten married. I was probably 28 and being in that and like feeling. So the reason they call it spiritual psychology is because it's putting the soul back into psychology. So they teach all the things like Erickson's developmental stages and all the kind of psychology based things and healing trauma and all that kind of stuff but they don't leave the soul and the spirit and karma out. Well, praise God for that. <laughs> exactly. Kind of important. <laughs> kind of important to know like this is all about soul evolution, yeah. you know, and that God is there to whatever we want to call it. God's spirit, divine source is just this unconditional love that we all have access to. And that's the ultimate healing. And I think that's, what's missing from a lot of psychology and mm-hmm. therapy is it's diagnosis and it's labeled and it's you do the healing and, when you really open up to unconditional love and let spirit in, I mean, that's the ultimate healer, mm, you know, mm. we can get to that level. So that was my home. I actually went and got another master's degree from there in consciousness, health, and healing. And then I was on faculty there for about three years and volunteered. And it was, um, just a place, especially living in LA, it was where I found my spiritual roots.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I love your spiritual side. I know that's something we easily drop in with mm-hmm. together every time we see each other is, and I reflecting on a text, we were texting back and forth, I don't know, last week or so. And you're just like, you sent me that gentle reminder. You're like, you know, I'm here for it all. <laughs> like the whole, like all those waves you're talking about, yeah. like I'm here for it. And I'm like,
0: here oh. for it. I love the waves. Yeah, You know, I mean, I hate them when I'm on them, but <laughs>
1: So I wanted to hear from you. I know that life coach is a term, you know, it's been around for quite some time mm-hmm. at this point and there seem to be different versions of them out there. And because you've been doing this for so long, I wanted to get your perspective. What makes a solid life coach? In my opinion, someone
0: yeah. who is their own best client, meaning continually doing the work. Yes. Like not teaching what you know in your mind, but teaching and sharing and guiding what you've already embodied.
1: Speaking my language, the Ceremony Circle Soul Fam knows like every single interview. I'm like, remember, I only bring on people that I feel are truly embodied. I'm like, I've probably said the word embodiment and embody like more than any word on this podcast.
0: (laughs) That's a great word. It's Uh, so good. And it's everything. And I was great at talking about concepts for a while before I really let them sink in. And Mona was great. Mona, and I say, it, I preferred her in the past tense because we lost her in 2000.
1: Mm.
0: Oh God.' 11. Has it been that long? Anyway, which was devastating. She was only 50 years old.: Oh wow. She passed in a car accident after recovering from like so many diseases, getting herself out of a wheelchair, which just boom, one day just was needed more on the other side, she's I guess done. But she's still very much around as a spirit guide for me, and she kept me when I said I was going to be a coach, this was back in 2004 when people would ask me what sport I coached when I said I was a coach. <laughs> right. And she would just be like, baby, don't coach anybody older than you. Don't coach anybody that's you know farther ahead. Like, Just stick to what you know, stick to the 20 something stuff. And that's how I started out. I was just an expert in helping 20 somethings because that's all I had embodied. Yep. And then obviously as I grew and developed my skills and did my own inner work and did my own trauma work and really got to, because the reason why coaches and I think therapists get burnt out is because they're subconsciously getting triggered all through their sessions. It's really not hard to hold space for people and listen to people's issues or suffering or whatever if you're embodied. And if you know how good spiritual hygiene and if you've already resolved what they're working through. But if you come to me and you talk about an issue that I haven't resolved inside mm. myself, I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to be, oh, that client was so draining. I'm going to come home and I'm going to be irritable or whatever. And so that's why I think a lot of coaches and therapists burn out because they don't protect their energy. And I'm really mindful. My sister and I were just talking about this morning on a walk of making sure I'm not using my energy. I'm using source energy to mm-hmm. pull from. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one. And then it's, it's just, you haven't done enough of your own work. Yeah. And so you're going to get triggered and all coaches have to start somewhere. And you know, I'm co founder of a coaching institute. We train coaches, and we're like, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be totally healed or anything. Just your willingness and your commitment to your own awakening. Yes. And constantly having your own coach and consistently doing your own work. Yes. That's the embodiment. You don't have to be walking on water, totally healed, no issues, because as long as you're in a human body, like you're still evolving. But that commitment to, I'm a student
1: before yes. I'm a
0: teacher is huge.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. I, yes just spoke on that at the last conference I gave a talk at in Vegas. Exactly. this. so much is coming Mm -hmm. in. I find which piece I want to go to because I love that Mona, you know, kept it real. I just, I think it's for any types of mentorship or coaches, you know, and I've done the same for some students as well. It's like, it does become our responsibility when people are coming to us for mentorship to call out like, Hey, you know, It's so amazing that you want to be a leader or teacher in this, but are you embodying it yet? And to keep that thing in check, and it is a dance and it is a balance because you do, it also is a huge part of taking that step and putting yourself out there and vulnerably and courageously presenting yourself as this thing that you're growing in, but to maintain the humility and to be a forever student, I think is paramount. And everything you said about life coaches, I would also bring over into the spiritual leader and teacher side and shamanic side as well. So I'm glad we pulled over in that. On a personal note, I'm just curious, how has your definition of success changed in the last 10 or 15 years?
0: Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, especially, you know, I pursued a career in Hollywood because I was a desperately insecure kid with something to prove. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood was the adult version of the cool kids, you know? And I always just had this yearning to be seen. And I think I also had a yearning to be known, to be famous, not necessarily super famous, but known. And that... And where do you think that came from? Oh, it came from insecurity. It came from wanting to prove to all the people that were mean or didn't like me that I was good or even better than them. You know, it's like that old, you know, we all have the not enoughness complex on some level. It shows up, you know, in different ways for all of us. But for me, it was a deep-seated, something's wrong with me, both from the psychological stuff that we talked about and also from not belonging. You know, I felt like health and body-wise, you know, I'm depressed, not going into puberty. Like all these things were wrong with me as a woman, as a, you know, mentally functioning person. And then socially, I wasn't accepted as well. So I had a lot of evidence for why I sucked, (laughs) to put it bluntly. So I felt like I had a lot to compensate for. Mm. I think because I escaped through television as a kid, it wasn't food. It wasn't drugs. It was TV. That was TV and movies. That was my escape. I think that I projected famous people and celebrities and people that are known because I looked up to them so much. I was like, that's how I'll finally be worthy. Mm. That's how I'll finally feel. That's how
1: all those people finally had the light bulb go off. Like, damn, she was rad. Yeah, exactly. And I'll be like, ha ha ha. So that, eventually wore
0: off as I started to awaken and (laughs) and heal a lot of those wounds inside of me. But that ambition and drive to be a human doing rather than a human being, like I felt very uncomfortable if I wasn't achieving something. Yes. I was like, well, what do I do? (laughs) Who am I? Like, I have to be writing a book or launching this or doing that. And so it was just so wired because again, achieving was my compensatory strategy. It's like, well, I don't belong. I'm not worthy. I don't fit it. Like, I'm not like the other kids. I'm just going to do stuff. And so I became very addicted to achieving yeah. and very uncomfortable when I didn't have anything to do. And so many of my personal clients are the high functioning, high achievers. And so women, especially men too, but in the women are just like, but how
1: do I not? Like, how do I stop? Oh my gosh, this is so important. And like, it even came up for me when I was talking to you before we hit record on that initiation that Mm. I was experiencing a few weeks ago. And I mean, it was vivid and wild and I think at some point I'll share on here what happened, but it's, it can potentially be super triggering the whole specific story of it. At the root of it, what was occurring for me in that initiation was a dying off of exactly what you just said with the archetype of attaining and accomplishing and striving and top of whatever. And that's really the main one that I've known and what was trying to come in was the mother archetype. So I'm curious for you, oh. and I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because it sounds like you encountered that. I am encountering that. And I'm sure so many are or will because it's also tuning into just that thing that we've gotten so far away from just like our original birthright as humans yep. to just be and talk to the earth and talk to the birds and to just. To not have to to be doing something Mm -hmm. to be worthy of existing. Mm -hmm. And we're so far away from that.
0: We're so far away from that. We do. We feel guilty. Most people, especially women I talk to that just don't do anything, feel guilty. They're like, well, I should go to a retreat center. I should do meditation series or I should practice. I'm like, no, just sit and be. But we're so afraid of well, both the guilt and I'm not enough, but also the feelings that come up because when you just be then the subconscious can start to be like oh well and here's this thing and i know for me that surrendering deeper into my feminine and deeper into being that transition from maiden to motherhood which has nothing to do with age or whether or not you want to have children it's sort of an identity deconstruction and reconstruction that happens is a biggie because you know i've went through my first kind of identity loss when i got married you know my whole 30s i was single and Traveling the world and entrepreneur and building a seven-figure business and all
1: that. You made a huge name for yourself by that name. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And
0: so in getting married and kind of being like, oh wait, this is my life now, which I love. I like it so much better. But there was a archetype that I had to grieve because Mm -hmm. it was no longer appropriate in marriage. And also in wanting a masculine-feminine polarity marriage. And my husband definitely holds a masculine pole. So there were areas where I was holding both the masculine and feminine pole when I was alone and just running the world by myself, running my world by myself to going, oh wait, like he's taking this part now and I need to let go of that and like step more into this world.
1: And what is one example that you can give to listeners of how have you released more Mm -hmm. into your feminine or Was there a certain ritual or practice, or is it just a feeling that you remind yourself of to go back to? What is one way that's helped you with that?
0: I think it's definitely been a gradual process. It wasn't like one thing, but the main thing for me was really practicing letting go of control and planning so much Mm -hmm. and scheduling so much and committing to so much and doing so much and really checking in and going, do I want to do this anymore? I mean, COVID was really great for me because I had so many speaking gigs booked in 2020. I was in the corporate speaking and personal development speaking world since 2006, and when they all canceled, I was like, "Oh, wow! I feel relief. I feel relief." And it's not because I'm tired; it's because I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to do it. And there's all these rational reasons why I should, but like my heart, like, no, I don't want to. So that was a really big thing, like feeling into. How do I actually feel about what I'm doing versus what do I think about it? Because if I just think about it, oh, it makes good money, all kinds of reasons. And that's that more masculine, controlling, achieving mind. Yes. Like, logically, this is really good on paper. But when I stopped and was like, "Well, how do I really feel about it? I don't really like it that much. <laughs> and giving myself permission, that's another huge word for me in this kind of deconstruction and reconstruction, is permission. Permission to say no, permission to not do permission to just be. And, you know, my husband's really been, he's been really helpful in this because he's really healthy in his masculine energy. And when I try to get into that, like controlling, driving, overpowering, he'll call me forward. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll mm-hmm. call me forward and I'll be reminded, oh wait, like I actually like better being in the feminine. It doesn't mean he makes all the decision and he leads all the time. We have a very collaborative relationship. But I like it better when he's holding that masculine pole and I'm holding the feminine. I just do. I yes. feel better. In my <laughs> and Same. it doesn't make me any less powerful. It actually makes me more powerful yes. because I'm more tapped into receiving. I'm more tapped into my empowerment. I'm not trying to compensate for all the ways I feel less than by doing. And I'm like, "Oh wow, like I
1: can just
0: be and that's yes. enough.
1: And connecting into the fibers of that worthiness of. Doing quote unquote just that, just being like I'm really in the process of navigating all the waters that you just described. And then some, of course, we could spend two hours just talking about this one piece, but I'm excited. It feels so right and resonant to all of my cells and DNA and soul. And it feels very different. Yeah. And, you know, the part of me loves being that ambitious, driven attainer, but like this whole. Yes, dropping into even deeper understanding of my divine feminine and releasing into allowing myself to learn what it feels like to be held in certain ways and to create more space and breath to learn what does this mothering parenting portal, what is it wanting to tell me today? I'm just relishing in this new adventure that's opening up. And so speaking of that, because I'm also aware of time and I know you have a client is I would love for you to explain with your journey, you know, it was a powerful step that you and Steph got together because you were really calling in and doing all the work needed to align in Sacred Partnership. And you can listen to Luke and I and Christine and Steph did a four way podcast on Luke's show called The Lifestylist. I don't remember the episode number, but it's an incredible show where all four of us talk about that specific part of our life and pathway. So I want to go more to fast forwarding, you and Steph get married, and making that decision to enter into pregnancy and birthing. And it was more Steph's idea, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. right?
0: I was resistant. Okay. And What better word is scared? <laughs> mm. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want a child. I don't know. I don't know. But really, it was about, it was fear. So I love deeply. And I still deal with anxiety and worry. Like my nickname as a kid was Worry Wart. It's one of the things that, I don't know, maybe someday I'll be free of it. I'm not attached. It's one of the things I'm like, okay, there's certain things I can shift and change. And there's certain things I just accept about myself and work with. I'm open to them shifting and changing someday. And this might just be how I'm wired in this lifetime. It's more about managing it and being with it and loving it and having incredible compassion for myself. So my biggest fear with parenting was loving another thing so much. And like worrying about it for the rest of my life. I was like, do I want that anxiety? And I was so protecting myself from that, that I missed out on all the beauty that could come from it. And it was at the dispenser retreat that we were all at together in January at the beginning of this year. Forgot about that. That I was like, I made it my sole intention to get clear on motherhood, made it my sole intention. That was all I worked on on that whole retreat. Wow. And because it was my second Dr. Joe, so I had like a little more experience and just was more intentional. And it was kind of my birthday the year before that I really started to open up to it, but we wanted to wait a little while. So we were actually doing a ketamine journey. And so I couldn't try to get pregnant then. And I was still, and, but it was also a stalling.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
0: like, oh, no, I have another reason to push it back. Another mm-hmm. reason to push it back. And also because I froze my eggs when I was 34, I was like, well, I can wait. I can wait. I can wait. But it really was just fear and resistance. So we went to Dr. Joe and I was like, yes, this is a yes. And right when Dr. Joe ended, we got home. We conceived in January. I got pregnant right away. And then it was like, what? Like this happened so quickly. And I don't think we, and I know we weren't ready because we ended up losing that pregnancy Mm. in March, which was a whole, that was such part of my initiation into motherhood. And on my podcast, do a whole episode on pregnancy loss because I mean, there's so many levels to it. But the one thing I'll say for women that are listening is who may have experienced that or will experience it, the shame you feel Mm. because yes, the grief, and yes, it's physically not a fun thing to go through and the obvious things. But what surprised me was the incredible, I was embarrassed to tell people. I had so much shame. I felt like my body failed. I felt like I failed. I felt like I... Did something wrong? Uh. I mean, just all of that that I really had to work through. That was a like deeper cut into looking at you know just shame in general. Yes, shame as a woman, but just shame in general. And I had to go through that initiation. And I had to go through that loss, and I had to go through like letting go of the attachment. And so when I healed from that, there's one thing I've learned: it's that when something happens, milk for all it's worth. Grieve go as deep into it as I possibly
1: can so
0: I don't have to do it again. And so I'm like, I'm not going to think about getting pregnant again. I'm just going to grieve this and I'm going to honor it and I'm going to go. And I really retreated from the community. I went into like my own cave for a few months. Yeah. And luckily we took a trip to Mexico, which was like brought my soul back to life. And we started talking to the soul again. And Steph and I got really clear of like, okay, we're going to try again. And we're not going to, we're just not attached. We're going to try until the end of the year. We were clear. We really didn't want to use my eggs. We just really wanted to see if it happened. And as soon as we opened up again on summer solstice, right back in, she just came right back in. And I think it was quote unquote easy, because my journey was easy compared to so many women's journey with pregnancy. Easy for me. However, if I tried to get pregnant 10 years ago, it would have taken me these 10 years to get pregnant. I would have had to do everything Mm. I did, like all the somatic sexual work, all the healing I've done, all the detoxing, all the, I've done so much clearing out of my womb, of my psyche, of my body, of all parts of me. So much inner work, so much. And I'm not like patting myself on the back. This has just been my work, you know? And so I think it was that created the space for the soul to really come in. So when people are like, oh my gosh, you got pregnant so easy. I'm like, well, "Well, if I really (laughs) look look back and if I'd been trying these past 10 years, I don't know that it would have happened before right now.
1: That's so true. I love that perspective. And thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm curious, what is one other teaching I don't know if you've mentioned the name that you guys are going to name her. Publicly. Not yet, no. Okay. So I won't say that, but I'll just reference her. What is another one of the teachings that she has already provided to you?
0: <laughs> There's been so many. But... And isn't that incredible? Yeah. That she just kicked. That's so funny. A big one has just to be like, chill, mom. I'm fine. Like, I'm good. Mm. And that's a huge one. Like, this is up to her more than it is me. Like at this point, I'm the portal and I'm not, you know, downplaying my role in this, but this is her journey. And that's already been the teaching of like, I'm choosing this. I'm choosing when I want to come in, even with the pregnancy loss, because I'm certain this is the same soul that came and was like, "Mm, not quite right. And then came back and I could be wrong, but that's what I really feel intuitively. And so like trusting her rhythm Trusting her timing, like trusting that she is, even though she's a baby and it's going to come in as an infant, is going to be dependent on us. She is a very wise soul right. with her own intellect, and she knows.
1: Yeah, the fact that inside of you, the first time her little radar, her little sniffer, she's like, "Eh, this is not the time." Yeah, yep. I mean that's very wise.
0: Yes, it is. I, hard on mom and dad, but also like you know this, like trusting her process. So that's been a huge thing for me. Is to that thing I said earlier about getting out of her way and going, there's only so much I can do. And still, even though I'm like nearly 23 weeks pregnant, there's still part to me that until she's in my arms, I'm like, is she really coming? Like, is this really going to happen? Is she doing okay in there? And that's my work. That's my, one of my massive practices in motherhood is to like, let go. Let go of the white knuckle. and over yeah. and over and over again. Over every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh my
1: gosh, so powerful. And that brings me to another listener question. And yeah, you're still going to be able to answer that even though you're still technically a mother-to-be. At Charlotte Connors asks, if you have any inspiration for mothers who are doing the work and mm-hmm. by the work, she put it in quotes so I understand she means by like the inner mm-hmm. spiritual work and overwhelmed by so much work. I know that's a very vague general question, but I guess, you know, yeah, for you, how have you navigated entering into the mother sphere while also being so, because you are someone who's completely dedicated and Mm -hmm. devoted to exploring yourself?
0: Well, I think that one of the best things you can do for your kids is your own work, truly, and let them see you navigating stuff, let them see you cry and just be like, Mom's sad. She's just working through things and making that time for yourself. Because I think, Too many mothers, especially, parents in general, but especially mothers, go into martyr archetypes, go into the self-sacrificing, go into, it's okay if I haven't done anything for myself in five years. Like, my kids are good. And what that's teaching our kids is that we don't take care of ourselves, we take care of others. And so we end up raising a bunch of caretakers and people pleasers, or they go the completely opposite direction, and like, I'm not doing what mom did, and don't know how to take care of others, kind of become selfish. So I always tell parents, it is so important to prioritize your work, not over you. I don't believe in prioritizing things over other things. If I prioritize myself, it doesn't mean I'm not prioritizing my husband. It just means that I am not sacrificing myself and not sacrificing my own needs so that I can serve someone else. And I think mothers fall into that trap big time, big Mm -hmm. time, because it's like, I can't possibly go on a spiritual retreat because my kids need me. No, your kids need you to be your best you. That's what they truly need from you. And they're going to, their kids learn everything through the subconscious, through watching you. And so if they see you doing the work and taking care of yourself and making time for yourself, they're going to
1: go, oh, Mm -hmm. that's self-love. That's self-care. That, yeah, that self-honor, respect, reverence, the things that were not taught in school. And so it should be learned at home through your family structure and unit. Yep. Okay. I love that advice. There's two more listener questions. This one's similar. So we'll flow into this, but maybe, you know, it won't be too long of an answer. At Seeking Clarity asks, how do you keep the balance between the spiritual practice, being of service for the world, career, and family? They all go together. Yeah.
0: Your spiritual practice doesn't have to be alone in your room with crystals and candles. Your spiritual practice can be how you show up for your family, how you show up in your career. To me, love that they all blend together. They're not compartmentalized.
1: Mm-hmm. We'll leave it at that. I love that. And then this last one is, it's very unique, but I'm just going to go ahead and toss it out there to see if a download comes to you. At Steph Trebino asks, what role do you think alcohol plays in spirituality or psychology?
0: Well, I think for me and for so many people that I have come in contact with and just knowing the biochemistry of alcohol, I think it's a depressant. I think it starts to tune us down. I mean, I think a lot of people think that it's, it can be useful as a tool because it releases our inhibitions and it can make us more vulnerable and the truth can come out, but there are better ways to get there, in my opinion. And alcohol lowers frequency. It just does. And I love wine. I'll have a glass every once in a while. But I feel it. And I know if I'm going to go teach or I need to be tuned in, my antenna is going to be foggy if Mm -hmm, I've had alcohol. mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I will attest it in my own personal journey. I never at one point set an intention or goal to become sober. You know, I mean, I definitely for sure partied in my teenage and through college and 20s you know, definitely had a very good time, but I started to notice, especially once I got more devoted to spiritual inner work, it just completely phased out. And I truly, and I have nothing against people that drink or have the occasional glass of champagne or wine, but I personally cannot even tell you the last time I had a sip of alcohol because over the past 10, 15 years, once it did phase out, there was a a spiritual dinner I went to and Mm. they had chakra-based alcoholic beverages. And I thought, okay, well, if there's ever a place where it might be an alignment, it would be this. And I literally took one sip of the drink and everything. I literally heard it clear audiently in my entire being said, no. (laughs) And so that just happens. And I think it's to your point about the frequency and the vibration and there is just a darker, lower energy to it. Gosh, I had so many other questions. So I'm just gonna have to have you come back on because, you know, we didn't even get into the empath tips and stuff with you and stuff. I had some interesting questions I wanted to go into there. But I'd love if you could close us out in just a brief any sort of practice, meditation, Mm -hmm. technique that would be of service to everyone.
0: Yeah. Well, we briefly talked about the inner child, which is huge. And we could do a whole podcast on that. But I think it's so important for all of us to have a daily connection with that little one inside that's super connected to our sensitivity and our wisdom and our magic and our intuition. And inner child work, in my experience, has been the best way to learn how to get our needs met and to Uh understand why we have the patterns we do, why we quote unquote sabotage or protect ourselves in the way that we do. And when we can have a dialogue with the inner child and a connection with the inner child and go, okay, what do you need? And respond to that and learn how to give ourselves what we need. Oh my gosh, so many of the patterns mm-hmm. and sabotaging behaviors and unhealthy relationship patterns and all that kind of start to go away because unmet childhood needs, we act out
1: yes. constantly. So it can be such game changing work. And I'll just briefly say, yeah, one of the most life changing meditations or journeys I went on, my younger self came to me about seven mm-hmm. and I was able for the first time to see energetically what I felt inside. In my childhood, she came face to face with me and through her essence and energy and her eyes, she showed me that I was just trembling and terrified energetically in yeah. my childhood. And I thought, dear God, that's how I felt and lived yeah. pretty much 24 seven gives you so mm. much compassion, so, much, yeah. so deeply healing. So, so I love healing. this. Yeah. So we'll just do a brief process.
0: And if you have access to a picture of yourself when you were little it's really good to use in this meditation. If you can pause and go grab one, I keep one on my phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And every time I'm being mean to myself, I look at my little picture of my little two or three-year-old and I'm like, oh, stop being mean to her. <laughs> just really is a great compassion elixir uh, pictures of ourselves when we're young. So you can pause and grab that or you can just visualize it. So we'll just start with our eyes closed, no matter if you have the picture or not, and take a few deep breaths. And as you're breathing, just gently bring one hand to your Solar plexus, your belly, and one hand to the center of your chest, your heart space. Doesn't matter which hand. Just feel your breath rise and fall in your belly. And that's your seat of safety. That's your core. That's where your relationship with yourself, your empowerment resides. So just feel into that hand and feel that sense of safety inside yourself knowing that you are safe. And then feeling that hand on your heart, also feeling the breath rise and fall, feeling into that place of unconditional love and wisdom, knowing you are loved. And then if you have that picture of that little one, You can open your eyes and look at the picture as I'm guiding you through this. And if not, you can just continue with the visualization. So if you're looking at the picture, just look into that little one's eyes and connect. And if you're visualizing, just imagine yourself slowly regressing in age until you arrive at any age that pops into your mind. Maybe it's seven, maybe it's five, maybe it's three, maybe you see yourself as a baby and just take a few moments just to see that little one see who's come forward look into their eyes and see this little one as representative of your all your children your whole childhood that innocence that sensitivity that wonder and just inside yourself to say hello I'm here, our inner children just sit around and wait for us to come and check in with them and just notice their reaction to you. Just gently ask, is there anything you need? Again, is there anything you need, anything in the world that you need? I'm here and I want to listen. Listen. I'll just be quiet for a moment. and We'll just see if that little one has anything to
1: say. Good.
0: And maybe it came forward in words or a picture. Maybe they showed you something or... Perhaps there was a sensation in the body. Or perhaps it was hard to connect with that little one because it's not something you're familiar with. That's okay. It just takes practice. So if indeed they did share something with you, just say to them, I really hear you. And I'm really going to take care of that for you. I commit to making sure you get what you need. And if you're looking at the picture, you can close your eyes now and just imagine that little one being so relieved that they've been heard. Thank them for coming forward. Thank them for sharing. And tell them you'll be back to check in with them again. And then imagine a place that you can send them you can put them, it could be your bedroom if that felt safe to you, or it could be a made-up place or a playground you loved or a tree house, just place that felt really safe and happy. And see that little one there, safe, happy, protected. Out of their past and into this safe place in your consciousness now. And then coming back to your body, feeling that hand on your belly. I am safe. Feeling that hand on your heart. I am loved. Reminding yourself of that promise you made to the little one. And committing to fully showing up, and not abandoning yourself, and delivering on that need. And take one more nice deep breath. Let it go with a sigh. You can
1: release the hands and come back into the room. Oh, my Lord. Holy moly. Oh, mm. uh, so powerful towards the end. Mm. Um. Oh, she Where she wanted to go was in the front room of my grandparents' house. Mm. And, like, they had big windows, so it was always sunlit and warm. And, mm. and just the energy, it was just, I can remember it like it was mm-hmm. yesterday, even though I've been in that house in so many years. And it was extra powerful too, because my grandmother, you know, just sharing in sacred space, she's really close to making a decision to transition. And I've been talking to my grandpa who passed away when I was in college and we were incredibly close. Mm -hmm. Like he was such a guide for me, both of this world and then the unseen world still. And I was talking to him the other day and just asking if he had any message for me around my grandma and just and like less than a second later such powerful wisdom came in so that was just so healing and powerful for me to oh thank you yeah have them both present and just there's like a ceiling or a closing of Mm -hmm. that form of that chapter you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so thank you
0: oh my pleasure thank you for sharing that those little ones are great guides
1: Oh, so powerful. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, guys. (laughs) Um, Uh, Thank you for your sharing of your tales and personal journey and just your wisdoms being a master life coach and spiritual psychologist and all the things that you are. Um, This will probably air in like January-ish. So. Anything that uh, people should most know about in terms of offerings and the new oh, year? Oh, just head over to the podcast over and on with it. Listen to me coach people on the air. Yeah. That's my favorite thing. Cool. Yeah. Well, love you so much and oh, thank you. Too. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. We'll sit with you guys next time.